It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast, coming in 3, 2, 1. Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Jacinta Delhaize and Dr. Daniel Kahneman. Each episode, we'll be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at world-class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies. Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make. Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies. Welcome to episode 10. 10. Yay, we made it to double digits. <laughs> It'll be a slightly longer episode today in celebration of episode 10, but I hope you make it all the way through, even if you have to listen in two parts, uh, because we've got some uh, great guests with some really special things to say. Yeah. What are we talking about today? Today we're talking about stars behaving badly. <laughs> So we see stars in the sky and we think they look all innocent and pretty and sparkly, but they're actually roiling balls of bubbling gas and plasma. And sometimes they do crazy things and we call it, we call it uh, stellar activity uh, where they f- have flares and coronal mass ejections that where the, the stars suddenly throw off parts of their outer layers. Uh, and uh, we're looking at what happens to the planets around them when this happens, including the Earth. And also what happens to extrasolar planets. Um, We're talking about pulsating stars, lots of good stuff. Our guests today are Priscilla Mohechi, who is doing her PhD in astronomy at the Mbara University of Science and Technology in Uganda, and Hakim Olushai, who is a distinguished professor at the Florida University of Technology. Yeah, we got to chat with Priscilla and Hakim uh, when they visited Cape Town recently for the Astronomy in Africa meeting. Yeah, which was a, a great meeting, the formation of the African Astronomical Society. Yeah. It was a, an event organized by the Office for Astronomy Development, which is based here at the observatory in Cape Town. Uh, and yeah, very exciting stuff. Yeah, so first we'll hear from Priscilla, and she's on track to become the first woman to graduate from a PhD in physics in Uganda, in a Ugandan institute. And for her PhD, she's studying uh, coronal mass ejections around M-type stars. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let me just explain that. There are two main types of, of stellar activity. There's flares and there's coronal mass ejections. And flares are like uh, bright flashes of light on the surface of the, of the star, and it can result in the acceleration of highly charged particles, which can go streaming towards the, the planets that surround that star. Now, a coronal mass ejection is also caused by um, realigning magnetic fields inside the star. But this is actually the ejection of a, a huge amount of highly magnetized particles or plasma from the outer layers of the star, and this stuff actually goes hurtling towards space. And it can it can hit the Earth or it can hit whatever uh, planet is going around that star. Um, and sometimes these clouds of plasma can expand out to be much bigger than the actual size of the star itself. And what is, what is an M-type star? So stars are given uh, a letter classification based on the kind of molecules that we can detect inside them. Um, for example, the sun is a GV-type star. And M-type stars, or just M stars for short, are by far the most common star type. And it's important to study these because many of the extrasolar planets that we've found um, are going around M-type stars, um, extrasolar planets being planets that are not in our solar system going around the sun, but going around other stars in different solar systems. So we want to know what effect the star activity uh, will have on those exoplanets. Yeah, and whether it's going to be conducive for love, right? Or whether yeah, the star exactly. is going to completely obliterate, obliterate. it. <laughs> Great. So um, let's hear from Priscilla. With us now is Priscilla Muhechi. Welcome, Priscilla. Thank you. Uh, Priscilla, you are um, from Uganda and you work in astronomy. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, Priscilla Muhechi. I am a PhD student at Mbara University of Science and Technology in Uganda, and I'm glad to be here. What got you interested in astronomy in the first place? 
first of all, we are a small community in the Department of Physics. So under the guidance of a professor, Associate Professor Edward Jiro, who is the head of department, who's trying to run a drive to promote astronomy in Africa and especially in Uganda. And um, basically, we have uh, courses in undergraduate studies. And as you study Introduction to Astrophysics, there's so many fascinating things that you get to discover. And eventually, it motivated me to go ahead with astrophysics for my graduate studies. And more to that, currently, there's no female astrophysicist in Uganda who has completed from, from Uganda in particular. So it motivated me, and I'm thinking, oh, I can make the name. You can be the first. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. So I was motivated to do my graduate studies. I did my master's at the same university, and later on enrolled for my PhD, uh, which I'm currently doing. So uh, tell us about your PhD. What are you working on at the moment? Uh, Currently, for my PhD, I'm looking at uh, the effect of still activity on planetary atmospheres, in particular around M-stars. We know of this uh, campaign to look for another habitable planet. And it happens that uh, the biggest targets are M-stars. So it's very important to understand the properties of these M-stars and how they could influence the planets in around their system. Okay, so I'm, I'm not a stellar astronomer. Could you explain what an M-star is? What are the different types of stars? There are different types of stars and there are classified according to their sizes, to their luminosity, that is the brightness. And M stars are very cool stars with uh, effective surface temperatures about 3000 Kelvin. Okay, and how does that compare to our sun, for example? Um, The sun is about uh, 5700, so that's uh, like close to half of the temperature of the sun. Okay, so they're cooler. Are they bigger? No, they're usually smaller in size. Smaller, so. okay. And what makes them um, what makes them interesting to study? What makes them interesting to study is because they're very active. I mean, there's a lot of activity on their surface and in their environment. So they are interesting because that activity brings about so many other issues that uh, can actually influence their environments. And secondly... In the current um, Corot and Kepler satellites, uh, it has been discovered that about 75% of the targets are, are M-stars in, within our galaxy. So it makes it interesting because if they're the biggest number of candidates, then it's very imperative that you look at how best will they accommodate planets. What do you mean by targets? Targets to what exactly? Um, in the exoplanet uh, search so, ah, so searching for planets around other stars. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Right. And so you said that that many of the stars that were uh, selected to, to be looked at to find extrasolar planets are actually M-type stars. Most of the planets that have been discovered are around M-stars. Ah, right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's important to understand what's going on with these M-stars and how active they are and I guess how it affects the planets going around them. Yes, yes, yes. That's true. So what kind of activity are we talking about? What sort of things can a star do? So a star can give out a very high energetic particles in form of flares and also plasma um, through coronal mass ejections. So basically those are the two most prominent or energetic phenomena that take place on stars. So what's a coronal mass ejection, CME? Uh, coronal mass ejection is uh, where there's a very big energy. We have very big energies being released and uh, and a magnetic field from the corona of the star. I'm not sure whether you actually understand the whole stellar structure, but the corona is like the outside part of the star, the, like the atmosphere layer. of the star. Okay, the surface. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yep. Yeah. So when you have very high energetic particles and uh, magnetic field being released into interplanetary space, then we refer to that as a CME or mm. a coronal mass ejection. 
Does the sun, our star, does that have coronal mass ejections? Oh, yeah. It has several coronal mass ejections, and they are usually higher in number during very high active times. The sun has um, an 11-year activity cycle where there's decrease and increase in inactivity. So you'll have some time when there are few coronal mass ejections, sometimes there are no, and that during that time we, uh, it's a quiet time. And then when it's very active, you'll have many coronal mass ejections. And these uh, coronal mass ejections, for the case of uh, the sun on Earth, we are affected by these coronal mass ejections, not necessarily directly, but they interfere mostly with the space um, physics and equipment. Because when these high energetic particles get into the Earth's atmosphere, they reduce or interfere with communication and all that satellite thing. They are very crucial in uh, influencing space weather and all. Space weather, that's a cool concept. Is, is that what causes the aurora that we see? Oh, yeah. When uh, these uh, energetic particles get into the atmosphere, then uh, they interact with molecules. And usually that is at the poles because we know that the magnetic field is uh, polar. So at the poles, at the north and the south poles, we get to experience the aurora. Okay, great. So it's um, high-energy particles from the sun released through coronal mass ejections streaming through space to the Earth, where it causes space weather. They they interact with the Earth's magnetic field, spiral towards the poles, and cause these beautiful green light yeah, shows for northern us. Northern lights. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. Very beautiful features. Yeah, so I guess it's it's our atmosphere and it's our magnetic field that is kind of protecting us from from the impact of these high-energy particles from the sun. What would the impact of this kind of uh, star activity have on planets around other stars? Yeah, so for M-stars, because they're very active, if a planet has to be safe, we would need a very strong magnetic field that will deflect these particles as they come towards the planet. But it so happens that most of these planets are... First of all, at a short orbital distance from the star. So most times they are tidally locked. So they cannot generate a sufficient magnetic field. So which means that when particles are streamed from the star, they will actually interact directly with the atmospheres of these planets. Oh, right. So, so by tidally locked, you mean that the planet is always facing the same side to the star? Yes, that's right. And, and you said that that means it doesn't have a magnetic field? It cannot generate a strong magnetic field because, you see, magnetic field also is uh, influenced by uh, the rotation and also if it's always uh, tidally locked, there's going to be a very small magnetic field. Okay. So so you said that it doesn't have a magnetic field, so there's nothing to protect the planet from it the... It does have, but it has a oh. small magnetic right, field. Right, sorry. Oh, sometimes it is close to zero, depending on the structure of the planet, but uh, we would need a very big magnetic field because these planets are very close to their hostas, so, which means that the interaction is uh, very big. So we need a very big magnetic field if it's to deflect away these particles from reaching the planetary surfaces. Okay, so the, there's a weak magnetic field, not strong enough to stop the particles. So the particles hit the atmosphere, and then what happens? So when the particles hit the atmosphere, they get to interact with the molecules in the atmosphere, and most of these molecules are hydrogen. So what happens is that there will be escape of the hydrogen, and eventually the atmospheres will be lost. And of course we know, just like for the Earth, if we didn't have an atmosphere, we would not actually be existing, because the atmosphere keeps us safe from ultraviolet radiation, which would otherwise kill all the life cells. Yeah, so it's very important to know how much radiation comes to this planet if we are going to think of looking for a habitable planet. So the activity of the star might result in the essentially the evaporation of the atmospheres of these planets. And I guess that that's important to know, isn't it, if we're trying to search for life yes, out yes, there? Yes, in... It's very, very important because without an atmosphere, 
life cannot be sustained. It's actually the same as um, on Earth. Of course, when a star is uh, young, the activity is usually high. As it grows, the activity tends to reduce. So probably for the Earth, in the beginning, it also had a hydrogen atmosphere. And because of the high activity of the young sun, some was eroded until we got to form a secondary atmosphere, which we are now living under. So similarly, you find um, most of the M stars are young middle-age, old. So for the youngsters, we need to understand does the evolution of the plan of the atmospheres also take on the same track as what happened for the Earth? Because when they're young, it means they're very, very active. So if we're able to establish the activity rate when they're young, it's very easy to predict what will happen as they grow. So it's uh, very, very important. So what do you do in your work? How do you study these M stars and the influence they have on their planets? Yeah, so we do observations of the M stars. Currently we are looking at Eddie Leo and Evie Luck. These are very young and active M stars bright enough for where we are doing the observations so we can be able to observe them. And we do high-resolution spectroscopy. We study the behavior of the chromospheric lines. Chromospheric lines are lines, uh, emission lines that are produced due to absorption of light in the outer layers of the of the star. So these lines can give us um, a hint on uh, material that is moving in the chromosphere, in that part of the chromosphere, because. Basically, we are trying to look for flares and CMEs and trying to see how their effect influences atmospheres of planets around such M-stars. So you look out for extra emission in uh, chromospheric lines. And of interest, we have uh, H-alpha, H-beta, and uh, helium-1 line, which only exists when the chromosphere is very hot. It only exists at very high temperatures, so they are good indicators for stellar activity. So the chromosphere is part of the atmosphere, is that right? Yes, of the of the star. And what telescopes do you, you use for this? Uh, we are using the Totenberg Der Schell Telescope in Germany. That's where we're doing observations from. What kind of a telescope is that? It's a it's an optical telescope. So it's an optical telescope with a spectrograph, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. assuming, which is helping you to figure out which of these molecules and atoms are in the atmospheres of these stars. Yes, yes, yes. Great. Yes. And how do you apply for time on this telescope? Currently, we have a collaboration with the institute that hosts the telescope. So we were given observing time every month when the object is visible for a week. So we do observations for one week every month when the object is visible. And what have you found so far? So far, several flares, but still no trace of a CME. (laughs) So we are still searching for a CME because um, our motivation in this study is uh, previous studies aimed at looking at uh, predicting the possible CME rate on these very active stars. But they were using solar relationships because the sun is easy to study because it's the nearest star. These other stars look like point objects to us. So there's so much information we can get from the sun. And there's been an established uh, flare CME relation for the sun. Using the flare rate, you can determine what the CME rate would be. And so previous studies looked at uh, how they aimed at using that same relationship to predict what happens on these M-stars. But we're asking how credible is that because you're comparing two stars with different activity rates. So it could be possible that a high flare rate may imply a high CME rate, but also at the same time, you may have a high flare rate with no CMEs. And so far, We've not found a CME. We are still hoping to see one because uh, it's not that they've not been observed. On this particular star, Eddie Leo, a very big CME was observed about 29 years ago, and that was the only CME so far that was observed. All the other studies have not come up with uh, something really good to prove that actually this is a CME. There's always uh, material living, but with a very small velocity that does not qualify to be a CME.
So uh, we set out to find out if we have a longer observation time, can we be able to to get these CMEs? Are they rare or are they never there? That's also another thing. And then from there we can know, is it really right that we use the solar relationship? So probably we need to actually get the, the CMEs from these stars and then we can come up with models to predict how frequent they, they occur. And if they don't occur, then we also see what next. Great. So, I mean, good luck with your uh, the rest of your research. This thank sounds you, thank you, thank you. really interesting, and I am really interested in hearing what your result is. Yeah. Do you have any other messages you'd like to share with our listeners? I advocate for women in science. I like to see more women in science. Wherever you're best, uh, whether in a developed country or a developing country, and in a developed country, I don't care. But I wish to see more women represented in the scientific community, and especially astronomy. Currently, we try to do runs and drives to see that we encourage more girls and women into science and STEM fields. And I hope that it can yield something in the next five years. I agree. And it's quite great that we have role models like yourself to follow. Oh, yeah. So Thank good you. luck. Good luck with the rest of your PhD. And we're all cheering for you. And uh, maybe we can speak to you again one day and find out what your results were. Oh, thank you. That would be a pleasure. Thank you very much for talking with us today. You're welcome. Great. Thank you for that. I mean, for, for me... Studying stars has always been quite, I don't know, it's, it's out of my field. I've yeah, always been fo- focused on galaxies and yeah. much larger things. Realizing how much there's still to learn about how stars are kind of behaving and they're, they're very vibrant. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. They're not so peaceful. <laughs> no, they're really not. And, um, yeah, it's, it's quite cool. And, and I think the, the relation to the exoplanets is really, really nice too. There's a lot of interest in exoplanets these days. And, um, trying to understand what sort of stars host these exoplanets and, and what sort of exoplanets will, will be orbiting around what stars is kind of a new sort of era of astronomy. New field, really. Yeah, it is kind of yeah. a new field. Yeah. These planets are, um, as Priscilla said, tidally locked to their host star and they don't have strong magnetic fields, so they don't have atmospheres or uh, magnetospheres that are protecting the surface of the planet from these flares or coronal mass ejections from the star. And I guess just one flare or one coronal mass ejection could just wipe out any life that had started to form on that planet. So these must be really harsh conditions for life to try and start forming. You keep realizing how incredibly um, lucky we Lucky, are. definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and also just great to hear the work she's doing in, in Uganda, right? Yeah, and I absolutely agree with her about uh, encouraging uh, more women in astronomy everywhere in the world, but particularly also in, in developing countries such as Uganda and other African countries. Yeah, a wonderful role model. Definitely. Uh, next up, we have Hakim Olashai, uh, who joined us to talk about some of his work and also talking about stars and coronal mass ejections, some of the work he's done on the sun and how it's, it affects the earth, but then also how, how these stars, the stellar pulsations can be used to, to measure distances to, to distant stars. And, and I mean, that was a, that was a, a great step forward in astronomy when that was first discovered. Yeah, as uh, as Hakim explains, this was this was really groundbreaking mm. for the field of astronomy and our understanding of our place in the universe. Yeah, absolutely. So let's hear from Hakim. In the studio with us today is distinguished professor Hakim Olushei. Hi, Hakim. Hello. How are you? Hello, good, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Oh, I wasn't ready for that. Uh, Daniel, what's Fla- up, man? Flipping it to me. Yeah. Uh, so, um, Hakim, thank you for joining us. And can you tell us quickly who you are and where you're from? Well, as you already heard, my name is Hakim Olushei. I'm based in the United States of America. And uh, I'm a professor at the Florida Institute of Technology. And what do you do there, research-wise? 
Yeah, so my I'm, I'm weird because I read many years ago that a researcher follows their curiosity, and that's what I do. So I don't do one thing like many researchers do. So one of the things that I do is study the surface of the sun, the atmosphere of the sun known as the corona. Um, and another thing that I do is study our galaxy using what's known as survey science, where we map out the sky and discover millions of stars or observe millions of stars and uh, we get basically a movie of the sky. And from there, we can tell a lot of things about different types of stars. And the stars that I'm interested in are the ones that change their brightness by pulsating. Okay, so so th- those are two quite different uh, astronomical techniques. So if we're looking at the, the corona of the sun, uh, what sort of telescopes are you using for that? And yeah. do you have uh, telescopes here in South Africa that you've used in the yeah. past? Or? Yeah. So the, the work on the sun is using a technology that I helped to develop as in graduate school. So when you see these pictures of the corona with all the pretty plasma loops, the type of mirror that takes that image is not the same kind of mirror that you look at in the morning and get ready for, for your day. This mirror will reflect invisible light, like what do we call soft x-rays or what we call extreme ultraviolet light. And so it has to be built up layer by layer in a very special way. And what it allows us to do is take a photograph of the sun at a particular temperature. So when you look at the uh, images that come down from space, you have images that are at a million degrees, 1.5 million degrees, 20,000 degrees. And so you can fit all this stuff together along with measuring the magnetic fields at the surface of the sun and kind of figure out what's happening. And that's what we do. We take the light and we interpret it and it tells us what the matter is doing on the sun and what the fields are doing. And what are they doing? They are busy. They're moving around. The surface of the sun is boiling. It's like it's covered in a big, giant ocean of 6,000-degree plasma. And these magnetic fields that are created inside the sun are buoyant. They flow up to the surface, and then they break up from the surface. And now they control what the mass and plasma do. And so many people are familiar with solar flares. That's when you have large magnetic regions doing what we call reconnecting. The magnetic fields break, reconnect to others, and they give all this energy to the to the plasma, which comes to us as light. And sometimes it comes to us as a big blast of matter, of stuff that gets sent out of the sun. And we call that a coronal mass ejection. Just in terms of the, the telescope again, yeah. um, the, these telescopes, we can't see uh, UV and X-ray from, from Earth, correct? We, we cannot see it from the ground. It can't make okay. it through our atmosphere. Now, you can measure magnetic fields from the ground, but it turns out that we do it so much better from space that the ones in space are the ones that we actually use the data for. So anybody, if you're in South Africa and you want to study the sun, the data that comes down from these satellites is freely available for anyone to use. All right, and, that, and that's the stuff you use. So, so there's these telescopes sitting up there observing the sun all the time. That's right. These special mirrors to detect. Yep. Oh, excellent. Yeah. And then to do that research, you said these, these coronal mass ejections come, um, and everybody talks about solar flares, and it's quite a dangerous sort of, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of fear and, yeah, I guess, yeah. misunderstanding about, right. about what these things do to us. Um, what do they do, and, and, and what do they look like for a telescope, firstly, and then when they hit Earth? Yeah, so, you know, it's it's really crazy, but the first solar flare to be observed was observed with the naked eye. And so the observer, I forget exactly who it was in history, actually drew a picture of this bright spot on the sun. Now, we know you're not supposed to look at the sun without, <laughs> you know, having some approved solar glasses on, right, to protect your eyes. Because the light that comes from the sun will damage your eye if you look at it. But in the old days, they did that, right? And uh, now... What kind of damage they can cause, if you are in, in space, it can be some serious damage, right? It's, it's radiation from the sun. It's protons primarily that are flying down. And so they often affect the uh, instruments that we use uh, in, in space. It, 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 you know, the electronics can get affected by this radiation. Um, but it also... And interacts with the Earth's atmosphere. So you've heard of the ozone layer. The ozone layer is created by the light from this part of the sun. And when the sun gets uh, more active, as we say, Earth's atmosphere swells. And that means that 
the satellites that are in low Earth orbit, which is most of them, they experience more drag and they can like deorbit and come back down to Earth. But what's happening right now is our sun is way less active than normal. And so when this happened centuries ago, it um, was a period known as the Maunder Minimum. There were, uh, you know, famines that occurred uh, in association. Now, we don't we can't say with scientific certainty that the solar activity caused the famines, but the fact that they correlated suggests that. And so now we're going into another cycle like that, potentially. We don't know if that's the case, but what we do is we count the number of sunspots on the sun's surface. And if you look at uh, the last several cycles, so the sun is more active on a cycle of 11 years. And so if you, the, the number of sunspots every 11 years is getting smaller and smaller, right? And so it may go to zero. And if it stays there for a long time, then the Earth's atmosphere is going to settle way down. It's going to contract way down. And um, weather may change as a result. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I didn't know that. Like, I mean, I, I knew about the the eleven year cycle. I didn't realize that this was something which is slowing down. Do do we have a better understanding than we did a hundred years ago about why this happens? Not really. So it's all about the process that makes magnetic fields on the sun, and we call that the solar dynamo. Whatever it is that creates these fields. Now, I told you that the sun is like it's covered in a boiling ocean of hot plasma. Well, that's the outer one third of the sun, and the magnetic fields. What we know is they're created where that layer interfaces with the layer below. But the exact process, we don't understand. And something very similar is happening with the Earth right now. So the Earth's magnetic field, North Pole, has been in Newfoundland, Canada for the entire human history. And now it's moving at 40 miles per year toward Russia. So we think that the the Earth's pole is flipping, right? The North Pole will become the South and the South will become the North. Um, And so the thing about Earth is, you know, we're very lucky here because we have a very thin atmosphere, but also we have a strong magnetic field that protects us from the radiation from the sun and beyond. So when the Earth flips its pole, which the sun does 11 years, then we might have a period of being not very well protected. Uh, from this type of radiation. So when you're like in an airplane, you get more radiation than when you're in the ground. So will it become dangerous, right? That's a question that we have. Will it become dangerous if you're up there a lot as a pilot? That's another question that we have. Um, so uh, you know, another thing that happens, though, is that when the the activity from the sun strikes the Earth's magnetic field, it can cause the Earth's magnetic field to change. And a changing magnetic field through a process we call induction, creates electric fields. And so that means that when one of these big flares of coronal mass ejections causes the Earth's magnetic field to rearrange, that causes huge currents to go through the power lines that we use. And so back in 1989, it wiped out the electricity in North America for a huge portion of it in Canada and America's eastern area. We're quite used to that in South Africa. <laughs> yeah, we have load shedding. <laughs> um, just going back a, a minute, what uh, what actually causes the Earth's magnetic poles to flip? Right. So it's it's exact same type of problem we have with the sun, which is figuring out what's the source of the Earth's magnetic field. So on the sun, we know it's the interface between this outer layer and the next layer in. On Earth, we know it has to do with the nature of Earth's core. It has a a liquid core and a solid core. And um, whenever you have currents, whenever you have charged particles like electrons, like we use electricity every day, and what's happening there is electrons are flowing. Whenever these charged particles flow, they create magnetic fields. So if you have the flow of liquid metal inside the Earth's core, then that's going to create magnetic fields. And if it's um, the direction is, so you can imagine that it's spinning in one direction. If it changes the direction that it's spinning, right, then that's going to change the direction at the magnetic field points. Yeah, but as you said, it's first got to slow down at some yeah. point, and that's going to weaken the magnetic field, and that's where it gets a bit dicey. That's, yeah, that's where it gets dicey, and, and we don't, you know, we don't know what we don't know. I imagine it like suppose there's a species that lives in your toilet, and they only last a generation, only lasts one second. Right. Then over the course of a day, you'll have many, many generations. Right. And so they may think that the normal state is the toilet is just sitting there still. But then someone comes <laughs> along and flushes the toilet and they're like, oh, well, 
I'll freak out. I mean, right. I wasn't thinking about the flush. Like, uh, like, okay, yeah. I mean, but we have a sense of normal is my idea. But but humans, our life cycle is so short compared to the lifespan of no, for the, sure, yeah. the time scale of these it's changes. It's an interesting analogy, though. Yeah, I know. It, it, it's not the best analogy. Maybe no, I should come up with one, one that like doesn't no, involve like a toilet. I don't know. It's, yeah. Maybe it's your cup of coffee. It's right? definitely descriptive. <laughs> Get your attention. Since we're talking about toilets, let's let's change the subject a little. You said your second topic is on pulsating stars. Yes. Yeah. What are pulsating stars? Yeah, so there are these stars that are old, and what happens is is something very similar to when you boil water. If you take a pot of water and you put it on a fire and you put a thermometer in there, what you see is that the more energy you put in there through the heat of the fire, the hotter and hotter the water gets. But then once the water starts boiling, it doesn't get any hotter, even though you're adding energy. And the reason why is because instead of that energy going into making the water molecules move and vibrate faster, which we call heat, it breaks them apart, right? It breaks apart the liquid phase into the gas phase. And so that phase change is what eats up that energy. Um, and so the same thing happens in these stars. There's a layer where there are helium atoms and instead of the, the um, energy flowing out of the star, the energy is absorbed by these helium atoms and one electron is removed from them. And so now a star or anything that's like a gas-like or plasma-like, if you heat it, it expands. So since this energy is staying in in order to ionize this helium, instead of escaping, the star gets hotter and it expands. But eventually, it ex- as it gets bigger, it's cooling at the surface. And so eventually it gets so cool that now the helium atoms can capture those electrons again. And suddenly, uh, it's not absorbing energy, and so it, it falls back down to its small state. So it expands slowly and then falls back down to the small state. Expands slowly, falls back down to the small state. And surprisingly... They're brightest when they're in their smaller state and dimmer when they're in their larger state. And that's because they're hotter when they're smaller. And the thing about these stars is we can tell how far away they are based on how they pulsate. We know what type of star it is. And then we can tell how bright it really is. And so if you compare how bright something really is to how bright it appears to be, you can tell how far away it is. Much like if I gave you a flashlight or a lantern and told you to go stand in the field, if I know how bright your lantern is really based on how bright it appears, because it gets dimmer as we move farther away, I can tell you how far away it is. So in astronomy, the most difficult problem is the problem of measuring distances. All stars look the same through a telescope. Doesn't matter if they're near or far. Um, a, a, a far away big bright star will look identical to a nearby small dim star. So how do you tell what you're looking at? Is it big and bright and far away or small and dim and close, right? So with these types of pulsating stars, we can measure their distance and then that allows us to uh, do a lot of different things. So the, um, these these pulsating stars that we use for to calibrate distance, they're for a particular range of distances, okay? Right. So uh, nearby we can use parallax yep, yep. Uh, so we can just see the sort of shift on, yep. on a yearly basis um, of the, the positions of the stars but once they get further away and in other galaxies it's impossible to, to, to detect those differences. Right. How, how far out can we measure distance using pulsating stars because presumably at some point you can no longer pick up individual stars. Right, right. And that's a, that's an amazing question because this is what Edwin Hubble did to prove that what they were calling at the time spiral nebulae, which we now call galaxies, were actually outside our galaxy. So he saw them in the Andromeda galaxy, which is around 2 million light years away, right? And so with Hubble, you can look very deep into space and find these stars millions of light years away. I use smaller telescopes to do it. So I find stars that are around our galaxy, that's around our galaxy and what's known as the halo, in the attempt to find satellite galaxies of our galaxy. Because we're trying to understand how do galaxies build up and also... The incoming stuff, what is it made of? Is it made of the same stuff that's already here? Or, you know, because what happens is stars change what the matter is, 
right? So hydrogen becomes helium. Helium becomes carbon and oxygen inside of stars. And like when we saw two neutron stars collide a, a year or so ago, you know, 10 times the mass of the earth and gold was created in that collision. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's really fascinating stuff. And, and, you know, if you have a bigger telescope that can capture more light, then you can see farther and farther into the universe. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've got lots of questions. So the Milky Way, you're looking at looking for satellite galaxies. We know there there are two satellite galaxies, the small Magellanic Cloud and the large Magellanic Cloud. And in the Southern Hemisphere, we're fortunate enough to be able to observe those with the naked eye even. Is there evidence for more? Oh, yeah. So one of the most famous ones is called uh, the, the Sagittarius Dwarf, which is actually colliding with our galaxy. Our galaxy is eating it. And so as it's... Uh, orbiting the Milky Way, it gets torn apart gravitationally by tidal forces. So there's also what is known as the Sagittarius Stream. Uh, and these little galaxies, when they come in, you know, they end up getting incorporated into our galaxy and becoming a part of it. And so there are several streams. There's the Montessori stream. So, uh, uh, you know, 20 years ago, we knew about the, the, you know, large and small clouds of Magellan. We knew about the Sagittarius stream. But then, you know, the, the predictions are that there should be about 200 of these dwarf galaxies. And we only knew about, you know, four or five as of 20 years ago. Now we know of around 30, right? So we're finding them. But they're all like streams now. They're all getting stripped stripped out like yeah that. some of them aren't stripped apart yet and they're just like cl- clumps but they're just not bright like the what you can see uh-huh. here like the southern hemisphere sky is so amazing it, it so beats the northern hemisphere <laughs> sky i tell you yeah. yeah i love coming down here for for exactly that reason Speaking of which, um, why are you here at the moment? What are you doing in in South Africa? Yeah, so we are here working on forming the first continent-wide organization of astronomy professionals uh, on Africa, known as the African Astronomical Society. Uh, We initially formed the African Astronomical Society in 2011. Um, and then, uh, over time, uh, things kind of dissolved. And so now it's reformed because the astronomy community today is not what it was back then. South Africa, for example, has done a great job of helping to create astronomers, not just in South Africa, but around the African continent. And so they come here to do their astronomy. You have the Meerkat Array, you have the SALT telescope, you have other telescopes out at Sutherland. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 the African skies are dark. And they're in the southern hemisphere, many of them. And so that's the, that's the, those are the skies we need to make observations from, right? So what, what, what we're doing is in service not just to Africa, but in service to the world. The growth of astronomy in, in South Africa, as you mentioned, and training students, um, that's largely been done through the NASP program, the National right. Astrophysics and Space Science program. Um, and you've been involved in that. Can that's you right. tell us a little bit about it? Right. So my colleague, Charles Magruder, uh, he got a grant from the Kellogg Foundation. Uh, we did through through an organization in America known as the National Society of Black Physicists. So in America, I was the one black astrophysicist who had grown up in uh, underprivileged circumstances. Right. And so Charles asked me to join with him in this program. And he said to me, Hakeem, you know, as well as I, that the problem is not a problem of academics. Right. And so I came here and I work with NASP students. And so what was happening up to this time when I started in 2008 is South Africa had only produced three black astronomers and all of them were in the year 2003. And there was a phenomenon where students would get recruited, but, you know, they come to UCT and they would have a difficult time passing what's known as their honors exam. And so after working with students for three years, myself, Charles Magruder and others, um, my professor host at University of Cape Town, Peter Dunsby, said to me, he said, Hakeem, I have great news for you. Not only have all the students you worked with passed their honors exams, they all passed in the top 20 percent. Right. So that was very exciting. And, and, and shortly after that, I traveled internationally and they would talk about the SKA uh, contest and South Africa. And they would show the SKA control room and I'd see my students there. Right. And so that was the greatest feeling in the world, uh, knowing that you could control contribute to helping people change their lives. Because even in my own community, you know, my father dropped out of school when he was nine years old and my mother dropped out of school when she was 16. So I had no idea that something as astronomy 
as a career existed or physics as a career existed, people reached out to me. And that's how I, I, I learned about it. So I thought the least I can do is reach out to others. But when you change one person like myself, you change the whole community because now the people in my old community where nobody went to, to the university, now, you know, half the kids go to the university. Yeah, now the uh, NAS program has produced, I think, over 150 masters and 90 PhDs. Wow. wow. Which is a huge number. That is a huge number. Yeah. Less, yeah. Than, less than 15 years, I think. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Amazing stuff. Yeah. 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 Well, well the, the astronomy community in South Africa is uh, worldwide uh, top class, right? It's not just, uh, you know, top class on the continent of Africa. It's, it's, it's top class worldwide. And of course it comes down to your, um, your, your, your assets and your main assets are your people. <laughs> and, and I mean, that's absolutely true. And that we, there's a, there's a great bunch of astronomers in the African continent. And as you say, now forming into the African Astronomical Society to hopefully cement that, that relationship and move this forward. Yeah. Yeah. There's still many countries in Africa where there are no astronomers. Some, uh, I heard an estimate yesterday that there's 34 for which there are you know, no astronomers. And even if you look at major observatories for a while, in terms of working observatories, it was only uh, South Africa. But now, of course, Ethiopia has had a working large meter class telescope for quite a while. There's one being built in Burkina Faso. I think uh, Egypt has one. And, of course, there are non-visible light telescopes in places like Namibia. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful, Akeem. Uh, do you have any other final messages for our listeners? Well, I would like to thank all of the uh, people of South Africa for being so amazing and, and uh, allowing me to come visit and contribute to developing your community and being a part of it. It's, a, it's one of the highlights of my career in life. Thank you. Thank you for your contributions and thank you for your, for your passion. And, thank you. And yeah. thank you for this. Anytime. Thanks for chatting with us. Bye-bye. Wow, that was a an awesome interview. So many things. Um, uh, I don't know where to start. I guess I just I found it fascinating to hear how living next to a star, the sun, which gives us our energy and light, it can also cause absolute havoc. Yeah, <laughs> some scary concepts. Yeah, I mean, it it could have caused famines on the earth. <laughs> well, at the very least, I mean, I think that yeah, we we don't realize how uh, vibrant and sort of unpredictable these these things are. And and talking about that cycle, the sort of the fact that the sun's 11-year cycle, which we kind of thought we knew about, is dissipating now and yeah. what, the effect that that's going to have. And I, I always knew that the, the magnetic fields were, were weakening and maybe we're going to flip and things like that on the earth. On the earth. Yeah. But like the fact that the, the sun's activity can affect our atmosphere and the thickness of our atmosphere sort of puffing up our atmosphere. Yeah. He, he said that the, the activity of the sun actually creates the ozone. Yeah, I guess it's the the energy is required to to excite those particles. And again, we we always knew we were heavily dependent on the sun yeah. for all of our energy and heat and all of our cycles, weather cycles, and everything else. But realizing that the sun's not quite as stable as we we previously thought, and and the actual fact of that instability, which helps us have an ozone. I mean, it's all tied yeah. together so intricately. And again, just how lucky we are. Yeah. And that we've been lucky for four and a half billion yeah, years. Exactly. Um, I guess we just hold on for a little bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers uh, crossed. Huh? Uh, our luck's not going to run out now, is it? <laughs> no. We've, we've got a, a few million years, I think, probably. To, million? Maybe a few billion. Who a few knows? billion uh, to, to figure out what to do about it. Yeah. Well. <laughs> And uh, Hakeem also mentioned the NASP program and the graduates. So I'd also like to take this chance to congratulate the latest graduates who came through the program and have been recently awarded their PhDs from the University of Cape Town. And that was to Dr. Sam Lagodi, uh, Dr. Kerry Patterson, Dr. Elizabeth Naluminsa, Dr. Marie Corsaga, and uh, Dr. Brenda Namumba. Now, Marie actually becomes the first female astro astrophysicist from the country of Burkina Faso. Brilliant. Yeah. And uh, Brenda becomes the first female Zambian physicist, so first PhD in, uh, in any physics uh, field. Uh, glad she chose astrophysics. <laughs> yeah. And Zambia's very first PhD in astrophysics. And Liz becomes the first Ugandan woman to earn a PhD in astrophysics. So she may have just pipped Priscilla at the post there, but um, Priscilla may still become the first to earn the PhD in Uganda. 
Awesome. Isn't it incredible? I mean, yeah. Congratulations to everyone. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Congratulations, guys. Must have been very nice for them to hear their names of the doctor in front too. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I graduated from my PhD. That was the first moment. That was yeah. that was pretty awesome. Yeah. Walk into the bank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you Miss or Mrs. Uh, doctor? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I keep up the great work, everyone. Um, astronomy and the kind of knowledge economy uh, in in Africa and South Africa is growing every day and. Again, as Hakim had mentioned with the, the development of the African Astronomical Society, uh, Africa is going to have a major role to play in the next few decades. Absolutely, it will. And that's it for today. Thanks very much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next episode of The Cosmic Savannah. You can visit our website, thecosmicsavannah.com, where we'll have links related to today's episode. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we'll post extra pictures, videos, and some behind-the-scene footage. Uh, we're at Cosmic Savannah. That's Savannah, spelled S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H. Special thanks today to Priscilla Muhechi and distinguished professor Hakim Olushai for speaking with us. Thanks to Mark Olnut for music production, Janis Brink for the astrophotography, Lana Serai for graphic design, Michal Wercek for photography and assistance, and Sebastian Tulinski-Obrochki for help in post-production. We gratefully acknowledge the support of the South African National Research Foundation and the South African Astronomical Observatory to help keep the podcast running. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll speak to you next time on the Cosmic Savannah. Great. So um, let's hear from Priscilla. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. In the studio with us today is Hakim Olushei. That's the best anyone's ever said my name. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. No. Well, I'm going to leave it to her. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do the guests. Mohechi and Hakim Olushai. Shai. Shai. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you did it well. Whatever. <laughs> I'm going to put that in the bloopers. <laughs> Across 10 years and more than 12 million downloads, we've brought you day after day of content. Thank you for making this possible. Now we've added a new way to donate to 365 Days of Astronomy to support editing, hosting, and production costs. Just visit www.patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and donate as much as you can. Share the podcast with your friends and send the Patreon link to them too. Every bit helps. As we head toward our 10th anniversary on January 1st, 2019, we have to ask, what in the cosmos do you want to hear about? Let us know by emailing us at info at 365daysofastronomy.org. Thank you. You are listening to the IYA 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post-production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. Please consider supporting the podcast with a few dollars or euros. Visit us on the web at 365daysofastronomy.org or email us at info at 365daysofastronomy.org. This year we will celebrate the Year of Everyday Astronomers as we embrace amateur astronomer contributions and the importance of citizen science. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye. Goodbye.